Hi, I'm Sean Griffin. Welcome to Kingdom in Context. Hi there. Welcome back to Honor of Kings. I'm Sean Griffin, and my co-host with me. Ken Eiderbrecht. Hey, Ken. Welcome back. It's good to see you again this week. Good to see you too, Sean. This week's been pretty good, and I uh, celebrated a birthday a few days back, and you know another, another year of the heavenly luminaries performing their circuit above my head. Yep. It's... Uh, <laughs> It, it makes you wonder if, like, if you didn't keep your birthdays, if people would, you know, if if it would mess with your mind or if it would encourage your mind as you progress in life to not uh, feel old. You know, what I mean, if you just somehow were able to have, you know, selective amnesia, and but just specifically about your birthday, you know, if um, if you wouldn't feel old by the time you get to seventy or eighty. So yeah. it makes you be a fun experiment to see if it's really in your mind or not. But um, <laughs> starting now, Sean, it'll be my experiment. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll undertake it. Yeah. But as we're reading in the book of Enoch and also Genesis, apparently these guys were living hundreds of years. And as a result, you know, they were, you know, it was being recorded in Genesis. And, I, and I'm just guessing that they recorded it in their own personal lives as well. And so I, I've tried to imagine, you know, uh, for other writings that I've done, I try to imagine this idea of when you're having your 500th birthday, like what the heck is that like? You know, uh, imagine you know Jared, right? And he's having his his 700th birthday, and Adam shows up, and um, you know Mahalalel shows up, and you know, what I'm saying his son Enoch is there or whatever. I don't know if that's their accurate timeline, but just that'd be amazing. And all your other relatives you aren't mentioned, they're all there, and they're like, "Yay, 700 years!" You know, congratulations. And he's like, yeah, I got another. I'm going to try to outlive Adam. I got another 200 to go. <laughs> 500, that, you youngster. You still got 300 years to catch up to me. Yeah. Talk to me when you get to 700. Then we'll yeah. talk. Talk to me when you get to 800. Then we'll, then we'll, then you may have some wisdom. Yeah. It's just a, a, the paradigm is just amazing. It's just, I can't even fathom it. But um, I just can't fathom how much they were able to, to learn. They had so, you know, so many years to learn and to experience life and, you know, we have to cram it if we're lucky between sixty to a hundred years, and it's it's almost doesn't seem fair, Sean. It's like there's, you can learn so much in the span of a lifetime, and these guys get like ten lifetimes. Yeah, it, it's truly mind-boggling to because you know once you compound knowledge, then by the time you're three, four hundred years old, you've learned 
10 times more than the average intelligent person in our day who lives only 70 years. But then at three or 400 years old, you've taken all that compounded knowledge and you can pass it on to the next generation at, you know, by the time, you know, as they're growing up, by the time they're 50 years old, they're still a youngster in your eyes. They're still 10% of someone who's 500, but yet they've got all that knowledge from someone who's 500 passed down to them. Um, and that's how it compounds so fast. And so people could be extremely smart, which is why you have all the theories about all the ancient technology uh, that was antediluvian technology pre-flood. Um, yeah. in, in addition to what we've already read from Enoch about the, the Holy Watcher angels, you know, 200 of them descending and how they were teaching mankind um, extra skills and things about, you know, how to work in you know, metals and how to produce certain things and do enchantments. They were teaching them some bad things um, from a spiritual nature, but also some practical usage of the materials of the earth. And so I just, it seems real basic what they were teaching them. But at the same time, it's probably how they were using it, which is what gets real technical, you know. Yeah. Um, because and then and then it, and then you can understand why you know some of these patriarchs that were living so long were able to become known as righteous men walking with God, as they had so much time to learn and to you know adjust their behavior and set it accordingly. And it's just it, it became a pattern where they could live it out, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you get an, a, a habit ingrained in you for twenty years in this lifetime, and people think that's amazing, yeah. right? You know, um, you get praise from friends and family that you've been doing some consistently for 20 years. Now imagine doing it for 300 years, you know, and then the, the ingraining of that pattern of behavior, like you said, it'd be really, really hard to kick. So it's like, you know, it's almost like you get to and this is just me theorizing, but it's almost like you get to a, a wave, like the crest of a wave, you know, and you've seen all the temptation that life can throw at you. And you're at the crest of the wave and you've decided, am I going to fall back down the way or am I going to go over it? Am I going to overcome all this temptation and find myself into a smooth pattern of life that because I can, I know how to deal with these things because you've had decades upon decades upon decades to try, right? Yeah. To, uh, to weed out the bad, the bad behaviors and fall into a pattern of righteous behavior. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just, and it's interesting, Sean, because um, in some of these extra biblicals, it talks about how, you know, in Genesis, um, Genesis 6 where it says that man my spirit will only reside with men for 120 years we know in some of the extra biblicals that's in reference to them Yahweh graciously and mercifully giving the men of the, of the corrupted age during that time 120 years to turn so they had a long time to turn right yeah that's a long time I mean yeah. and supposedly Noah was a preacher of righteousness I don't know I, I doubt he was on a street corner but um, you know preaching with the sign up but I think that whomever he was coming in contact with in his life, he was a preacher of righteousness. And um, I think that we know the definition of that from scripture is that he was preaching God's instructions, God's Torah, God's law um, for behavior. And so it, to me, you got 120 years. And, you know, this is where we run into this famous passage in the new Testament where it talks about, you know, and not having seen the judgment come that was about to come. Noah's preaching to them of something that they didn't know about. And so he's trying to express to them there is judgment coming. Whether they believed him or not, they could still see his pattern of living and see righteousness and change their ways. But, you know, I mean, it's when you look at the practices of occult behavior and everything that's involved in that, it's highly addictive 
because it, it, it deludes your brain with the sense of pleasure and power. Yeah. That only leads to destruction, you know? Yeah. And so, um, and of course, all the, the backlash of it creates chaos on all levels. And that's what we see mentioned to us in Genesis 6, 5, that there was only evil in men's hearts continually. And the father was repentant that he made men on the earth because of all the evil that was happening, the chaos. So um, I think that's interesting. And also, you know, in the Hebrew, in that, in the, when we look at the flood story, I heard a, a pretty amazing thing that the word for chaos in Hebrew is Hamas, which I think is interesting because that sounds the, familiar. It sounds like a modern day terrorist um, faction. <laughs> yeah, Hamas is the name for chaos in the Hebrew used in Genesis six. So I think that that's uh, <laughs> that's highly ironic, right? For sure. Um, Okay, so this week, guys, we left off last week in chapter 11. This week, we're starting to pick back up with chapter 12, and we're going to get into um, some just some much more interesting concepts, right? Because we're going to explore deeper this idea of the judgment that's going to happen to the Watchers, how um, Enoch is, is uh, interacting with the Watchers and uh, what, you know, what God continues to say about the situation. So, uh, Ken, do you want to start off with the reading, or do you, should, you want me to? I'd love to, Sean. Okay, chapter 12. Okay. Before these things, Enoch was hidden, and no one of the children of men knew where he was hidden and where he abode and what had become of him. And his activities had to do with the watchers, and his days were with the holy ones. And I, Enoch, was blessing the Lord of majesty and the king of the ages, and lo, the watchers called me, Enoch, the scribe, and said to me, Enoch, thou scribe of righteousness, go declare to the watchers of the heaven, who have left the high heaven, the holy eternal place, and have defiled themselves with women, and have done as the children of earth do, and have taken unto themselves wives. You have wrought great destruction on the earth, and you shall have no peace and no forgiveness of sin, and inasmuch as they delight themselves in their children, the murder of their beloved ones shall they see, and over the destruction of their children shall they lament, and shall make supplication unto eternity, but mercy and peace shall you not attain. So, Sean, right away there, sounds a lot like Jude 1-6 to me. Yeah. Watches uh, of heaven who have left the high heaven, the holy eternal place. Yeah. So, yeah. They, they left their first estate, and they descended and apparently just continued to live down here. Uh, they, they didn't make any, you know, because they were told that they, they couldn't come back. And so they were uh, just living down here. And, and it makes sense that they couldn't come back if they defiled themselves because there's some, apparently they're in a sense, they're now unclean. Um, and I don't know exactly how that works out as far as if they were able to make themselves clean over time. Like we see in the law, if you become unclean, there was a process. And then later you became clean again, so to speak. Right. But this seems to be a much more serious defilement because I, as we think, I think we read later on in the later chapters, I think in, in chapters 80 or whatever, where it talks about that they changed their form when they came down. So it was almost like they they took on some sort of different type of nature to come down and interact, which maybe have disqualified them from a physiological standpoint to get back to their original nature. You know, so now they're yeah. eternally wild, you know. Yeah. Um, that's just speculation. We can dig into that further when we get those later chapters, but that could be what it's meaning when it talks about the defilement here. And yeah. it could be what Jude is talking about when it says they left their, you know, their first estate and their habitation. 
So, yeah, something that I was looking into, Sean, while studying these chapters here in Enoch, uh, I, I was reading Jubilees the other day, and something stood out to me. I just want to get your opinion on it. It says in uh, chapter 4, verse 15, actually halfway through verse 15, it says that he called his name Jared. So Jared is being born here now. For in his days, the angels of Yahweh descended on the earth, those who were named the watchers, that they should instruct the children of men and that they should do judgment and uprightness on the earth. So the way I understand that is originally the watchers in Jared's day were supposed to be tasked with teaching righteousness and instruction on the earth to the children of men. And sometime during that period is when these 200 angels decided to, to stray away from that and go their own way as they were getting, you know, tempted towards the, uh, the sons of uh, the daughters of men. Yeah. Is it possible that, you know, remember Zazel was teaching them how to make antimony and uh, beautifying of the eyelids and different things, right? The, the ideas of makeup, teaching the women how to do that. Is it possible that that kind of played into this scenario that they, the, the angels took notice suddenly of the women because they were, you know, being uh, jazzed up, so to speak, with all types of uh, makeups and um, different types of, you know, portrayals of seduction that suddenly they, the, the brain starts kicking, you know, they th start thinking about stuff. I don't, because it says that they, um, what, what verse was it say? Does it say they actually lost it after the women? Is that in the judgment in chapter 15? Uh, I think it's in, yeah, I think it's in that chapter, is it? Sure, while you're looking for that, though, like, yeah, I, I used to just believe that, the, you know, because like you've said in previous episodes, we're led to believe in church that, the, you know, these fallen angels fell from heaven and, you know, they came and they corrupted. But according to Jubilees, you know, these angels, these watchers originally were, were supposed to be instructing men in righteousness and proper instruction. And, you know, maybe they did that for a little while before they got tempted. I had just always thought that they, they started right away in the days of Jared of being these corrupted watcher angels. But it seems to indicate in, in Jubilees, at least, that that wasn't their initial, you know, way. Uh, absolutely. And I think I found what we were just mentioning. It's in uh, chapter 15, verse 4. And it says, and though you are holy and spiritual, living the eternal life, you have defiled yourselves with the blood of women and have begotten children with the blood of flesh as the children of men do. And you have lusted after flesh and blood as those who die and perish. So um, that's, yeah, it's just an interesting thought that they're, you know, it's just this idea that they, Genesis 6-1, right? They saw the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives. So they, they actually found them attractive and, and lusted after them in a sense. Um, which is interesting because like we talked about in last episode, these, you know, these watchers in heaven and, and apparently all the angels were created male, um, with actual male parts. And I, I just think that that's interesting because a lot of people teach that, you know, they're genderless. Um, I've heard that. And that's why I've brought this up twice now in two different episodes, just because that seems to be an idea that's propagated falsely through, you know, entertainment and movies and all kinds of stuff like that. And that they were created genderless, but then they had to take on a body with male parts in order to come do this deed. But, but Jubilees tells us from creation, they were made with male as a male, as we know a human male and all the parts included, they were made in that fashion. And so there was this inherent obedience that was required of them. Um, from the get-go, 
like this, you know, you know that old old saying, you know, the um, I can't remember the scripture right now, but you know, the greater, you know, the, the more you've been given, the more is expected of you. You know, yeah. I think it's in seven. But this idea that they were given access to the Father, they're the angels of His presence. You know, they're hanging out with Him, doing the deeds of the Father. They're in the heaven. They're created greater than mankind was, and they're all. But they're also given the you know the same physiological anatomy of mankind. And here we are. There, there's more expected of them. There's more restraint and control expected. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. but a very very small portion of them did not have that constraint and that control. That's right. But uh, a couple chapters later in Enoch, um, chapter 19 in the version that I'm reading, it might be different in, in other versions, but it says that, uh, I'll just read it real quick. For in the day, the great day of judgment, with which they shall be judged until they are consumed, and their women also shall be judged, who led astray the angels of heaven, that they might salute them. So to me, that seems like it wasn't just, you know, when we read Genesis 6 and other passages in Enoch and Jubilees that, you know, the watchers came upon the daughters of men and forcefully took them without, like, any type of consent or, or nothing, right? To me, it seems like the women, they played a part in, in the watchers, you know, obviously lusting after them. And, and they did it with nefarious, um, you know, intentions. Yeah. So, they, and then they get a judgment in that chapter for doing that. So it wasn't just specifically the angels going forward, grabbing these women and impregnating them with however their methodology, you know, root cutting yeah. or whatever it was. The women, you know, it's a two-way street here, right? It takes two to tango, as they say, in marriages. Yeah, so this is what you're saying is there was consent. There could have been consent. <laughs> there was uh, consent on both sides, and uh, both were wrong for it. Yeah. And that's um, because, you know, there's, yeah, all the chaos that ensued. But, yeah, that's interesting. Um just so people have a, a clear idea of this of this concept, um, so they're not mistaken that all these things were going down, um, th and that's what we read from chapter six up to chapter ten, and then the angels, and then God in chapter ten, He pronounced judgment that was going to be happening, and He explained the different types of judgments that was going to happen, both one for Azazel, uh, another judgment for the uh, Samyaza and all his associates, and then another different judgment for the Nephilim themselves, which are the offspring of this union between the rebellious angels and the women and so here we pick up in chapter 12 um where he's basically just talking about he's just kind of repeating these ideas of what they did how they did it and that they're not going to have any mercy which is interesting in verse six here it says the murder of their beloved ones they shall see over the destruction of their children they will lament and they shall make supplication unto eternity but mercy and peace shall ye not attain yeah, and verse 5 says that they're not going to receive any forgiveness of sin. Yeah. So that is that is super harsh. I mean, can you imagine if that was the same condemnation and judgment for mankind? It would be, like, and that's where I was getting at when I was saying, you know, they were created a higher order. They were given much more to begin with. So therefore, their transgression is greater. I mean, yeah. And knowing what we know, Sean, about, yeah. you know, the resurrection, first resurrection, and how we're going to be made into, you know, immortal flesh essentially um they know that they're they're not receiving anything like that right like there's no atonement for their sin they're not able to experience a type of death so that they can resurrect from a savior right it's like simply that's it for you your 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 one shot that you had is gone <laughs> that would suck to know that yeah and that in a sense is is the 
you know, people say, well, why? I think it's even in um, one of the other prophets like Ezra. He asks God in, in second Ezra, why make man if he's parceled out for destruction? Why make man that's going to make mistakes? He says that everyone born of man has transgressed. So and then they're they're set apart for destruction if they don't turn to your laws. You know, and he's like, why? Why even make man then? He's asking. Yeah, well, what do you, Adam? How, like, why did you do this to us? Yeah, he, yeah. he goes through this diatribe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he, because he's saying people, you know, men are are born corrupted now because of Adam, but even Adam himself. Um, and what I would say, you know, I, obviously um, Ezra gets an answer in there, but I've heard this style of question being asked from those who critique the Bible and critique anything that comes from the Bible any kind of theological idea of God creating mankind. And they asked essentially a same version of that question. When then I'll ask, why even, you know, why even mess with any of it? Why make mankind if it's, you know, if you're just going to punish him for not obeying you. And that's where I would say that he's actually made us very different and very uniquely compared to what we see with the angels who are given everything off the right off the bat with authority, power, knowledge, understanding, wisdom, we were made more like children, and we were to learn and grow. And as a result of that, there's a ton of mercy that goes with that. And that's what we see all throughout the story narrative of Scripture is he's constantly slow to anger, right? And that's he's constantly showing us, you know, uh, love and mercy that he's not just coming right in first time we make a mistake and hit us with a hammer. You know what I'm saying? It's just like there's continually he's like, if you just return and come back to me, I'll I'll take care of it. I'll fix it. You know. Yeah, that's why I can't stand this. You know, the Christians' um, teaching of uh, like dispensations of grace and stuff like that. Just like if you knew, you know, what these books say and how merciful and long suffering and patient the Father was, you have to change your perspective on that. You just have to, like like I mentioned earlier. Men were given 120 years to change in the days of Noah, right? Leading up to the flood. Um, you know, in Enoch, chapters earlier that we've already gone over, the angels had to go before Yahweh and say, are you looking down on the earth and seeing what's been taking place on this on this earth of yours? Like, it's going crazy. And it was over a span of many, many years. And he was mercifully allowing them to change their ways, right? Listen to the righteous ones that were on the earth, change your ways, and they just weren't doing it. So this concept of dispensationalism and, and grace ages and stuff like that. Like it just, it needs to be nullified from, from our thought processes and our, our theological stances. It just has to go away. Yeah. It's very destructive to understanding the book in general. Yeah. Cause you start breaking it up into portions that are not in the book <laughs> and you just, that just, um, you're creating segments and chapters and you're creating commercial breaks that aren't needed. So it's, uh, it's sad. But I think what, um, as we move to chapter 13, I think we're about to get a fascinating chapter because there's some things in here I wanted to point out. But more than anything, it's just verse one. We are going to get Enoch going to Azazel. And I think this is interesting. Um, so I'll just start reading real quick, unless you had anything further to say about that. No, I was going to say, read on, buddy. All right. So chapter 13, verse one, it says, And Enoch went and said, Azazel, you shall have no peace. A severe sentence has gone forth against you to put you in bonds. And you shall not have toleration nor requests granted to you because of the unrighteousness which you have taught, and because of all the works of godlessness and unrighteousness and sin which you have shown to men. And then I went and spoke to them all together, 
and they were all afraid, and fear and trembling seized them. And they besought me to draw up a petition for them, that they might find forgiveness, and to read their petition in the presence of the Lord of heaven. For from their thenceforward they could not speak with him, or lift up their eyes to heaven for shame of their sins, for which they had been condemned. So then I wrote out their petition, and the prayer in regard to their spirits, and their deeds individually, and in regard to their requests, that they should have forgiveness in length of days. So I went off, and I sat down at the waters of Dan, in the land of Dan, to the south of the west of Hermon. I read their petition till I fell asleep, and behold, a dream came to me, and visions fell down upon me, and I saw visions of chastisement, and a voice came bidding me, I to tell it to the sons of men, excuse me, to tell it to the sons of heaven, and reprimand them. And when I awoke, I came unto there, and they were all sitting together, together, weeping in Abel's jail, Abel's jail, it's a unique word, um, it reads in this translation like Abel's jail, which is fascinating. Um, but they were all sitting together, gathered together, weeping in Abel's jail, which is between Lebanon and Senesir, with their faces covered. And I recounted before them all the visions which I had seen in sleep. And I began to speak the words of righteousness and to reprimand the heavenly watchers. <laughs> okay. Man, so much in here. Um, yeah. yeah. First off, here we have this again, just like we saw in, in chapter 8. We have this again where Enoch goes to Azazel first and then goes to the rest of them later. So there's like a, you know, I'm not saying that Samyazel was under Azazel's authority, but there's a unique, there's a unique um, portrayal that Azazel is dealt with separately. And all, all these other guys are dealt with together. And we see that same breakdown in the judgments pronounced and I think it was chapter 10. Um, uh, and so that's where I just, you know, that's why I've had the theory that this Azazel cat was not under Samyaz's control and he didn't take a wife. Um, so that's why we have the judgments are different for them in earlier chapters. And that's why Enoch is going to them differently and separately. And so yeah. um, that makes perfect sense, man. I mean, it's yeah. it reads as if, and it, it goes with the theory that you know, this grouping of angels under Samyaza's uh, rule here, they're not allowed to speak to Yahweh nor lift their eyes up to heaven, but that that specific description wasn't given to Azazel. That's right. Which would go in reference to, you know, Job. If, you know, Satan is Azazel, he was able to go before Yahweh and still, you know, present himself, whereas these other ones were not able to do any of that. Exactly. And that's, and if, and if the Azazel character is the Satan character, like I've theorized, then that would be valid for him to continue to be the accuser of the brethren before the Father. You know, that he can come up to the Father and actually put forth the case to try to accuse us. You know, and that's, um, so anyway, I don't want to get too far off into that, but yes. So, so that's why we're getting a different um, descriptions for different groups. And Azazel seems to be in a group in his own. And um, yeah. I think that's for people to remember as they start reading the rest of Enoch. Um, one thing I wanted to point out real quick was um, not only, like I've said in the previous episode, these guys are crying, right? And I think that that's, you know, it's a sad scene. It really is. And what's interesting, though, is they're asking him for a petition, and it says, um, verse 6, Then I wrote out their petition and the prayer in regard to their spirits and their deeds individually. And in regards to their requests, that they should have forgiveness in length of days. So he's actually writing down their confession. Yeah. Individually, down. there's 200 of them. Individually. 
which is why he probably falls asleep trying to read it all out because there's a lot written down. Um, and of course, and, and I think it's ironic, Sean, that he goes to this uh, the west of Herman, where this this oath took place to begin with, where they decided to do their, you know, their ridiculous <laughs> pact that they made. Well, it's ironic. Yes, absolutely, man. Oh, also, another thing here that I, I wanted to point out, I thought was really fascinating, uh, Ken, is this part right here where it talks about and verses seven through nine. It talks about the land of Dan and then Mount Hermon. And then also Lebanon, and it, it mentions another place called Senesir. I don't know. We don't use that name today, but the other three names we still use today for these geographical areas. So there's a mountain range still called Hermon. There's an area north of Israel still called Lebanon, and still called Dan. And so I, I think that this is fascinating because you would have. I mean, there's a plausibility there because Noah was both on both sides of the flood, Noah and his boys, right? And so if they already had familiarity with calling these geographical areas, these names, we're getting these same names mentioned post-flood. And because they, they would just continue to call them that after the waters dried out and then they had all their children, they would say, oh, well, that's that's Mount Hermon, you know, and oh, well, that's the land of Lebanon. You know what I mean? So I think what we're looking at, since we're looking for the validity of Enoch, right, if this is mentioning places, that we actually still call those places today by the same name, that's a pretty interesting and what I would consider a powerful statement for Enoch being something worthwhile because it's actually given us a direct connection with stuff that we can go out and put our hands on today, right? We can go climb Mount Hermon today. In fact, did you know there's a UN observatory on top of Mount Hermon today? Yes, yeah, so, isn't there, there a particular uh, telescope up there? First? Yeah, there's there's this, there's this, there's actually a UN observatory with telescopes on top of Mount Hermon today. So I think that's fascinating. But there's also the land of Dan. There's also Lebanon. We know these are areas, right? We can go to these areas. So here we have a direct connection, pre-flood things being claimed with post-flood reality that we can experience. And I think that's pretty interesting. Um, just yeah. because... Yeah. It's like, it kind of brings the story home, you know? It kind of brings it into a, a personal touch because he's talking about places, because there's a lot of these things in this, because this is a pre-flood story, so, and, and this is a pre-flood book, and a lot of these descriptions and a lot of the things mentioned in here, you don't know what's going on. You don't know where it's taking place because, you know, these are people we can't go up to and talk to today. But I just like the fact that it brings in some things that we can go to these areas today and be like, oh, this is the mountain, and this is the mountain range where it says that these rebellious angels, 200 in total, came down in the days of Jared. That's a pretty interesting, and of course we see in, in Jesus' ministry, he actually goes to that mountain, doesn't he? He does. Right? Yeah. A week before he's crucified, doesn't he? Absolutely, yes. That's fascinating, man. Um, he goes up there, and at that mountain, there's a cultic occultic temples built um you know the the gates of hell supposedly is by its you know uh cultural vernacular but would be the gates of hades which is a temple to, to pan and to Baal, basically um and that was built at the base of mount Hermon. so you know at the place where occultism started there's a temple at the base of that mountain and i, I think that this is fascinating uh, yeah and uh, just the whole discussion between Yeshua and, and uh, his disciples and Peter's response to Jesus' question, you know, who do who men say that I am? And 
and then Peter says, you are the Messiah, right? The son of God. Yeah. And he just makes that proclamation right there at a very monumental um, place in history. You know, if I were to be Henri, I may even suggest that, is it possible that Jesus, you know, not only is he he's excited about Peter's answer, right? He says, man didn't reveal this to you, but God in heaven. But it's almost like, it's almost like a, a subtle um, test of, hey, do you guys remember the book of Enoch? Who do you say I am? We're here at the base of the storyline of the book of Enoch, you know, um, who do you say I am? Because the book of Enoch clearly talks about the Messiah to come. Yeah. We haven't gotten to those chapters yet, but um, I mean, we're going to get to chapter after chapter that just talks about the Messiah with full on descriptions. And here we are in a book strongly associated with Mount Hermon. Jesus is at the base of Mount Hermon asking his disciples, who am I? Yeah, and as Enoch is going to expound upon, as you said in later chapters, how he deals with these watcher angels that are quaking and, and in this chapter that we just read, crying, petitioning uh, the father through Enoch, and Enoch wakes up from his vision with an answer, right? And uh, it's not one that they would like, that's for sure, but I find it fascinating. We kind of, you know, chuckled a bit where it says that they were weeping in Abel's jail. Do you think there's anything to that? So we know Abel is kind of contained in a jail right now, right? A prison of sorts. Yeah, I just, if that's a, a land area or I don't know if that's mentioned for a town, I don't, that's very interesting. Um, and I've never seen that. Sheol is directly below that area of Herman. Yeah, well, that, <laughs> I mean, that would be interesting, but, um, and I've always theorized if, you know, the pit in Revelation um, is going to be in, in, the, in the land of the north, uh, which would be right near Herman. Um, so, I don't know. And I mean, that's, they built a temple inside a cave that goes into the mountains of Hermon called the gates of hell. <laughs> I just, it makes you wonder what they used to know. Um, you know, and that, I, it's very interesting, very interesting. So, um, I, I mean, I just think that there is, there's a lot we don't know about what's underneath us. Yeah. And that I think that that's, something that we probably won't get to know before the Messiah comes back. Even though they, men are trying with all their devices to poke yeah. a rod and drill holes and see what they can get to, right? But well, I would say there's some, there's some government agencies that know. They're just not telling people. Um, because the average person, I should just say that, the average person, you and I, um, we, we may not get to know till the Messiah returns exactly what's going on underneath us. Um, and as far as how, how far down is Sheol and what's going on there. But um, I think that the government definitely has a strong idea because they've been investigating it for years and years, many governments across the nation, across the, the plane of the earth. So um, I think that it would be interesting to see if, if the Messiah shows us later, you know, kind of the, the, here's the rest of the story in a Paul Harvey style. You know I mean? Here's all the stuff that was going on underneath you. Cause we have the verses that say that, Every knee will bow, everything on the earth in the, and under the earth, you know, in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth will bow uh, to Yeshua. So that's, there's there's stuff going on underneath this for sure. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, isn't it interesting, though, when you look at, like, the biblical creation model that Enoch gives us, but above us, above in the firmament, in multiple layers of that, all this activity happening, and then you've got below us in, in, the, in the realms of the pit, and Sheol, you have all this other activity happening. 
And it's just like we're caught in the middle, man. We're just in we're just in the middle of we're all sandwiched in between. Yeah. Yeah. And and both uh, heaven above is is interested and tasked to be involved with us on the land, and then the things below all want to get back to the surface, right? Yeah. And like we're the we're the center focus of it all, both literally and the in directionally, um, in the creation model. So it's fascinating, man. Chapter uh, fourteen. Do you want to read this one? Yeah, totally. Okay, cool. The books of the words of righteousness and of the reprimand of the eternal watchers in accordance with the command of the Holy Great One in that vision. I saw in my sleep what I will now say with the tongue of flesh and with the breath of my mouth, which the Great One has given to men to converse therewith and understand with the heart, as he has created and given to man the power of understanding the word of wisdom. So hath he created me also and given me the power of reprimanding the watchers, the children of heaven. Before I go on, Sean, um, verse two here, or sorry, verse three, where he says he's created man uh, to give him the power of understanding the word of wisdom. Like that to me tells me that we can understand God's word. That's that this, this conception that, you won't understand all of God's word. We can never understand it. He's so infinite out there. His word is just, there's too much. You'll never understand it in your lifetime. I think that's a lie completely. And I think you agree with that too. That's 100% a lie. And that is yeah. one of the things I've said many times in many videos is that we are able to understand God's word. He intended for us to understand it. That's how we are edified by it unto a change of behavior. And that is how we can grow in our righteousness and our walk with him is by understanding fully what he's saying to us, you know, so that, and he didn't make it too hard. We just have to push out the lies of the enemy and believe his actual words so that it's not hard, you know? And that's yeah, absolutely all right. Verse four here, I wrote out your petition and in my vision, it appeared thus that your petition will not be granted unto you throughout all the days of eternity. And that judgment has been finally passed upon you. Yet yeah, your petition will not be granted unto you. And from henceforth you shall not ascend into heaven unto all eternity. And in bonds of the earth the decree has gone forth to bind you for all the days of the world. And that previously you shall have seen the destruction of your beloved sons, and you shall have no pleasure in them, but they shall fall before you by the sword. And your petition on their behalf shall not be granted, nor yet on your own. Even though you weep and pray and speak all the words contained in the writing which I have written. And the vision was shown to me thus Behold, in the vision clouds invited me, and a mist summoned me, and the course of the stars, and the lightning sped and hastened me, and the winds and the vision caused me to fly and lifted me upward and bore me into heaven. And I went in till I drew nigh to a wall. Maybe we should stop there real quick. Do you want to address the those verses there, Sean, before we get into this detail here? Um, sure. Yeah, we can stop here for a second. Because I think I think verse nine and onward is, is worth kind of you know talking about separately on its own. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so basically they're they're told that they're gonna um, never ascend into heaven that they're bound to the to the earth essentially and that they're gonna have to before all this they're gonna have to watch their sons um you know the nephilim the giants die and destroy themselves and we're told that that's within a period of 500 years that they're to do that and one of the angels actually goes in and, and incites them to do that excites them and and, and they they bring about that destruction of themselves but 
and so they're from previous context what we've already read then we can safely conclude that this particular passage is from one through eight is talking to samyaza and his associates but not azazel yes i would so, agree with you because they're this is in connection with their specific judgment and how that's going to happen to them so yeah. Um, yeah, very interesting. Right on. All right, I can go on if you have anything else to throw in there. Um, not on that particular one, because I think it's, um, they didn't get their, their petition granted. We see that, that's repeated. They're reminded of the judgment that went forth, which is the destruction of their sons. And But I think it is interesting to say that they will not get back to heaven. Yeah. So this, again, like we talked about last episode, there's these other theories out there that they're going to be released and with those other theories, we get the inclusion of Revelation 12, where it claims that Satan and his angels are thrown down from heaven. And so that's where they claim, well, oh, they'll see the angels are back out. Bad angels are back out. They're thrown down from heaven. And I'm like, um, let's look at the definition of the word angel in the Greek. And then also let's take in the context of what Enoch actually says, the bulk of these 200 angels are not getting out. And they're not... They're not coming back and you know and they and of course like we talked about last time people will try to make the case but well but look at how like, technology has increased see they're coming back and they're doing the same things and i'm like no we still got the same same bad guys been out the whole time that's yeah that, that has all the same knowledge that the other guys did to give to mankind he's been out the entire time um so there's no reason to think that he couldn't be the one giving giving advanced knowledge to people but i personally think it's there's a reason for the um, there's other other biblical reasons for the increase of knowledge at this time yeah. in the last hundred or so years. And it doesn't have to specifically rely on rebellious angels getting back out of their punishment to go start doing these these deeds again. You know, so uh, that's just the way I view it personally. Yeah, no, and I would agree with that. And I would just add um, my current perspective differs just ever so slightly in that I think that where I agree that the 200 watcher angels are imprisoned and they're staying there and they haven't been released, um, that there could potentially have been other angels that fell, but did not participate in the Genesis six, uh, mingling with women and that there could be other, you know, corrupted angels that are just like Satan, Azazel out there that are skirting the law are still within the bounds of safety. You know, if I can put it that way, but, just because of the Prince of Persia and all these things. But I understand that there are demons that are, uh, and, you know, one-tenth of the demons from the fallen Nephilim that when they died, they are um, under Azazel, under Mustema, um, Satan. So it could very well be that um, too. And I haven't really looked into that any further, but I'm, you know, I'm obviously willing to, to change perspectives if, if uh, the context demands it. So, yeah, I think that, um, and we'll, we're going to dig into that idea because it's a, it's a good idea. Um, and there's some plausibility there. So we're going to dig into that idea later in Enoch. I think when we get to chapter 68 or 69. Yeah. And then, so stay with us, guys. Maybe, <laughs> that may be episode 15 or whatever. I don't know. But um, 30 at our rate. Episode 38. No, but um, but hey, what I mean, you know, regular TV shows have like 22 episodes every season. So we'll be all right. <laughs> All right, with uh, further ado here, I'll go to chapter, uh, or verse 9, rather, Sean. Okay, sounds good. And I went in till I drew nigh to a wall, which is built of crystals and surrounded by tongues of fire. And it began to affright me, 
And I went into the tongues of fire and drew nigh to a large house, which is built of crystal. And the walls of the house were likened, were like a tessellated floor made of crystals. And its groundwork was of crystal. Its ceiling was like the path of the stars and the lightnings. And between them were fiery cherubim. And their heaven was clear as water. A flaming fire surrounded the walls and its portals blazed with fire. And I entered into that house and it was hot as fire and cold as ice. There were no delights of life therein. Fear covered me and trembling got hold upon me. And as I quaked and trembled, I fell upon my face. So we're just going to stop there real quick, Sean. Um, so this structure, which is, you know, based of crystal, it sounds like, to me, that, that's very reminiscent of, you know, what Ezekiel essentially sees in chapter 1, I think it is, and uh, chapter 10, and in Revelation 21, where it's talking about the new Jerusalem. Is this, are you of the opinion that this is what this house is being referred to as? Yeah, I think uh, every time we see the, I mean, we see a unique mention in Ezekiel about um, these firmaments being made of, of like a crystalline structure. Um, and it's also rendered in many translations as sapphire, which I think is fascinating because we also have in Exodus 24.10 what seems to be a, a mention of sapphire crystalline firmament. Um, but that I just want to make sure people remember the previous context of Genesis. When we see this word heaven mentioned in these verses in Enoch, that the word heaven is, is the name that was given to the structure called the firmament. So Genesis 1, 6 through 8, that it was a firmament, solid, you know, substance that divided the waters above from the waters below. But then Enoch is going to mention different levels of that firmament structure. And so um, here we get the mention of the word heaven, as well as a house built of crystals, which I think is fascinating. Because sapphire is a crystalline structure. So, um, and then we get, you know, like Enoch 25 uh, supposedly Mount Zion, the entire upper portion of it is made of sapphire, which would be like a huge crystal top on a mountain, you know. Yeah. Um, and and by the way, sapphire, many people, when you hear that word, they think of blue. Sapphire comes in almost every color. It's just a form of crystalline. Now, the most popular, you know, cosmetic version of sapphire that we use for jewelry is blue. But there's a lot of different colors of sapphire. It comes in all different colors. Um, and it even comes in clear. <laughs> so you could have, you know, um, a wall with house with floors made of crystal and a groundwork of crystal and its ceiling, which I think is fascinating because it's mentioned in a house and it has a ceiling, right? And its ceiling was like the path of the stars and lightnings. So this is a, this is a fun analogy, Kim, because this has given us a direct comparison to a ceiling being like the path of the stars. So is the ceiling moving in a circle that we observe, or is it talking about the shape of the of the stars, of the path of the stars? Is I would it, say uh, the latter. Yeah, because of the ceiling, right? It's yeah. you know, <laughs> right. So is it possible that it's referencing a curved type of ceiling in this house, like a like a dome roof to the house? Yeah, I would say definitely. I mean, it it reads as such. Uh, just something I thought when I was reading this. Um, yeah, and even um, where it says in verse 11 here, its ceiling was like the path of the stars and lightnings, and between them were fiery cherubim. I mean, like I said, I, that sounds like Ezekiel 1, where he's shown the cherubim, and then above them is this firmament-like crystal structure that's holding up on top of that Yahweh's throne. 
Absolutely, man. Yeah, it's just, yeah. this is a great parallel to Ezekiel chapter 1, yeah, yeah. verse 1 through 10. And then uh, I think and also... Then, yeah, the fire, in verse 12, a flaming fire surrounded the walls and its portals blazed with fire. That, I mean, if we go to Genesis, right, where when Adam and Eve were kicked out and there's a flaming fire kind of surrounding... It, do you think that that's what that's referring to as well? Um, I don't know. I don't know, because we see um, a lot of descriptions here about near the throne of God and around the throne of God that we're going to get into in these chapters, where it seems to see, like, they can just... There's what looks like a river of fire at one point, and these other guys are standing in fire, and that it's not affecting them, and they seem to be made of fire. So I'm, I'm wondering if it's just they have the power over that that idea of fire. Yeah. Well, verse 3 in Genesis, um, or sorry, chapter 3 in Genesis says, So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So... I don't know if this is what Enoch is approaching here in this vision of his. It sounds kind of like it could potentially be. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, um, we may get more description as we read on. Yeah, I think that uh, there's these portals blazed with fire as well in verse 12. Um, what's interesting is verse 13, as I entered in that house and it was hot as fire and cold as ice. <laughs> You're like, oh, well, make up your mind, man. <laughs> this is what's going on here. Um, dry ice. Yeah, hot as fire and cold as ice. I don't know really how to how to understand that, to be honest with you. But um, but Sean, what's interesting is that he's feeling something, right? There's a tangible way of like he's got sensation. That's right. While in this vision slash dream, where he's you know experiencing these things, so he there's feeling to it too, right? Yeah, because he says he follows that up with there were no delights of life there. Yeah. So it's, it's in a place of uh, uncomfortability. Let's just go yeah. like that. But it, it, I guess where I'm going with that is, um, you know, in Revelation where John is taken up into heaven, right? And in the spirit, it says, and then he's revealed all these things. From what I gather is when these prophets are taken into these visions and, and shown these things, right? They're taken up in the spirit. They can still have sensations as Enoch is having here. So it makes me wonder just like, the talk about Sheol and all that stuff, you know, the afterlife where, you know, in Luke 16, Yeshua is referring to the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And, and, uh, as we approach Enoch 22, which with Sheol and its descriptions and stuff, you know, what is their potential as a spiritual being once we die to have feeling, even though it's not in a body of corporeal, you know, material. That's a great question. <laughs> I've wondered it. I'm just because it seems like there well, is something that you feel, but it's not fleshly feeling, right? Yeah. It's a spiritual. I, I, I agree that we definitely have sensation of some sort. Um, we have still emotion of some sort. We read that in other other books, um, both in the canon and, the, and in the extra biblicals, whereas uh, people are in emotional torment after they die if they were unrighteous. Yeah. But as far as physical torment, after you die, I don't, I don't know if I, and because I haven't really studied out yet. So normally I don't talk about stuff I haven't studied, but um, that's where I would just say, I would have to look into further to, to look at all the descriptions in the scriptures about like what we feel post body death compared to a vision while we're still in the body, a good vision where we're taken to a, a place I, I almost feel like that's a different type of transfer of a spiritual nature 
then are sold, even the body, um, to go to the, the pres preservation chamber of Sheol. Yeah, <laughs> because I mean, wrong, but yeah. I, I just have to study it more, which is why I probably shouldn't say much more on it. Well, as we go through Enoch, um, we're going to see that like Enoch is shown some things that are so terrifying that he's like thrown to the ground and his like countenance like melts on him, and he like like it just seems like there is something that you do feel in these you know spiritual. Um, yeah, that, that would be a, yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. You're definitely able to consciously perceive things and have emotions toward things, but as far as physical delight or physical pain, pain, pain or pleasure, I don't I don't know if in a vision it's the same type of feeling as what is described to us as those who are in Sheol and un the unrighteousness in Sheol and what they're facing and how that torment is described. Because I, I can confidently say that that kind of torment described in Sheol is not physical fire and pain. That is not given to us as a description in Enoch. Um, and, but it is described. I can't remember which book it is. I have to, which is why I should stop speaking on it. Yeah, yeah. As, as in, in the second Baruch too. Yeah. yeah I think it, it talks about how it's their, their uh, emotional torment is as of a flame of fire. Yeah. And so um, I just, uh, yeah, because I just don't, I also just hope that um, most people understand that, that are watching this, that Ken and I do not hold to Catholic doctrine. And uh, Catholic doctrine teaches this idea of burning an eternal fiery torment. And so they take a lot of verses out of context that are, that are spoken about the lake of fire in the Gospels and in Revelation. And they'll try to turn that into saying that's what Sheol is. When Sheol has its own definitions in Scripture. It's a totally separate compartment. different. Yeah, it's not the lake of fire. In fact, things are brought out of Sheol and put into the lake of fire and destroyed. They're not just an eternal burning torment in the lake of fire. It's a place of destruction where the soul itself is destroyed completely, as, as you know, Yeshua tells us in Matthew 10, 28. So just as you're watching along, I just want people to make sure that you understand where Ken and I is, uh, and our personal beliefs and our study on that particular subject come to, because we will get to that in Enoch 22 as we, as we go up. But just as a preface, um, I just want to throw that out there. What, uh, did you stop at verse 15 or 16? I did, verse 15. Okay, cool. Um, you want to pick up, Sean? Well, I just want to mention in verse 15, it said, <clears throat> there was a second house greater than the former. And I think that's interesting because now he's in this place, but then he goes to a place where there's even a bigger place or even, is, you think the word greater means in size or in, in like beauty or in awe and in, in how it looks? Uh, it's hard to say. Uh, I would think that it's bigger. And it says it's built of flames of fire. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just like, oh, that's going to hold up the timber frame. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating description, man. Uh, and, I, and verse 16, of course, says in every respect, it's so excelled in splendor and magnificence and extent that I cannot describe to you its splendor and its extent. So, uh, yeah, I'll just let you keep reading because there's some stuff I want to comment on this as well. So Sure, yeah. Okay, verse 17. And its floor was on fire, and above it were lightnings, and the path of the stars, and its ceiling also was flaming fire. And I looked and saw therein a lofty throne. Its appearance was as crystal, and the wheels thereof as the shining sun, and there was the vision of cherubim. And from underneath the throne came streams of flaming fire, so that I could not look thereon. And the great glory sat thereon, and his raiment shone more brightly than the sun and was whiter than any snow. None of the angels could enter, 
and could behold his face by reason of the magnificence and glory, and no flesh could behold him. The flaming fire was round about him, and a great fire stood before him, and none around could draw nigh him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, yet he needed no counselor. And the most holy ones who were nigh to him did not leave by night, nor depart from him. Until then I had been prostrate on my face, trembling. And the Lord called me with his own mouth and said to me, Come hither, Enoch, and hear my word. And only, and sorry, and one of the holy ones came to me and waked me. And he made me rise up and approach the door. And I bowed my face downwards. Wow, this is insane, John. We're getting a, a snapshot of Yahweh's throne, essentially, here. And it's just covered in fire at all directions. Yeah, and this definitely makes sense of the idea of being an unapproachable light. Yes, for sure. And his angels can't even go to it, right? They have to stay their distance. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty amazing. Um, but we get more more of the same descriptions of this second greater house that we got of the former house, which whereas the floor is fire, lightning, and path of the stars is, is stealing also. It was a flaming fire. So we now have the walls are on fire. The ceiling is on fire. And um, the, the, the floor is on fire. So that's <laughs> it's a, it's a hot environment. Well, it reminds me of you know Exodus three and four in the burning bush, right? So it's a flame that was not consuming. So it's almost like it's a unique type of flame. And if that was just the, the flame that was surrounding the angels standing in the bush, if the bush itself wasn't really on fire, but it was the it was the flame emanating from the angel inside the bush. You know, that's something to consider. And that could be what we see here. Or as you see, like, somehow this, somehow in this realm, in this existence above the firmament, these guys can deal with fire totally different than we can, you know? And it's almost like it just doesn't consume, which is fascinating, you know? You got it sounds like, like it's almost like plasma or something, you know? like Right, yeah, it makes you wonder what kind of fire we're actually yeah. talking about. But, um, yeah, I just think that it's fascinating because you've got uh, streams of fire coming from underneath the throne. The throne is also crystal. Yeah, then the wheels thereof as the shining sun. That's, you know, another fascinating concept. This also reminds me of the book of Enoch, or Ezekiel. Yeah. And the you know, wheels and a crystal floor and a crystal throne and... So, Sean, in terms of direction, just so we can give our viewers maybe a better understanding, um, does this greater house, do you think directionally, is it above the, the former one that we had just seen, Enoch? Because it seems like he's looking down and he's seeing the same agitated stars above him as below him that he saw previously, you know what I mean? So it's like he's seeing like underneath him the, the former level that he just came from, you know? So wait, say that again. You said he's looking down at the stars? Where was it? Um, I'm trying to make sure. The floor was on fire, and above it were lightnings, and path of the stars, and its ceiling also was. It just, I guess, in verse 17, just makes it seem like you know, above this this place, there were lightnings, and the path of stars, and its ceiling was also playing fire. It sounds like the previous environment that he was in. So I don't know if it's is it the same. Uh, you know, ceiling that he's seeing, but just a house above that, or is it a completely different firmament level? Yeah, I mean, that's it's fascinating to me because it doesn't give you much direction as far as the first house he goes into 
and then he fell upon his face and beheld a vision that was a second house greater than the former. So unless he's not really traveling anywhere, but he's just having a different vision of a different place. Yeah. That makes any sense. But, um, and it was a portal. It says in verse uh, 15, and the entire portal stood open before me. I don't yeah. like, I wonder if did he had to walk through a portal to get to that place or something or. <laughs> well, just, uh, Vision, clouds inviting me, mist summoned me, and the course of the stars and light sped and hastened me, and the winds of the vision caused me to fly, lifted me upward, and poured me into heaven. I went to drew near a wall which was built. So it's, yeah, it's like it, he could be ascending levels of firmament. But yeah. At the same time, um, yeah, just trying to, trying to hammer this out, that's probably the best way to look at it. He's probably ascending levels of the front. Yeah, that's, that's how it describes to me. And then other extra biblical texts seem to indicate that, you know, there are stages, levels, and height to firmaments. And I want to know who, what Paul is referring to, man, when he when he talks about I once knew a man, whether in spirit or out of the spirit, I cannot tell you who, who went to the third heaven. What the, What is that about? Well, I would say, just personally, it's the heaven. You talking about the man or the place where he went? The place where he went and the man. Do well, you think that was Paul? I don't know. I don't know if the I, personally. I don't. I don't know if the 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 person that he's speaking of, whether it's him or some other person he knows who made this claim, is um, changes anything about what he says he saw. Because again, we have the definition of heaven from Genesis one, and that is the firmament. So if he went to the third heaven, that means he went to a third firmament, right? Right. So which means we're taking these terms as in one, two, three, <laughs> right? So whatever the third heaven is, um, I would say it's a third level of firmament. How many levels of the firmament are there is a question that I would ask at that point. What's on the third level and not the second? What about the fifth? Is there a fifth? So there's a, there's a lot of questions that brings up, and I think that yeah. that's, I think Enoch is going to address some of them as we go. But yeah, clearly here, Wherever he, it doesn't tell us. Well, a can, I, can I just read Second Corinthians where this is out real quick, Sean, before we move on? Sure. Yeah. And this is this is referring to Paul. He says, "I knew a man in Christ above fourteen years ago. Whether in the body, I cannot tell, or whether out of the body, I cannot tell. God knows. Such a one caught up to the third heaven. So as Sean's saying, you know, that's a, a third firmament. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knows how that he was caught up into paradise." and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter of such and one will i glory so he's caught up to paradise apparently this guy which is in the third heaven yeah so that would be <laughs> very, very interesting if the uh the new jerusalem to come is in this third level of heaven because that's called the paradise of god yeah so i don't i don't know if what's above it is the is the interesting part, or if that's just the the beginning at the top of it. <laughs> so if you imagine a house with three levels, and the top level is the third, and then that that is the biggest level, so to speak. Um, so it's almost like you get two basements, and then the third level is the massive, massive level that it has the biggest interior dimensions and size. But of course, here in this Enoch fourteen, he's having a vision of two different houses. The first one's smaller. And if if that's what he's referring to as a house, is is the space that he's in, I don't know if it's the the width and breadth of what scripture describes to us as a as the firmament at creation. 
unless this is just inside the area of where God and the angels exist, there's a big house that's walls of fire, you know, like, and then he sees another bigger house, you know what I'm saying? That's, that's what we don't get is that kind of directional detail, you know? So it's very interesting, but clearly the bigger house has God's throne in it, which is, which is fascinating. And out of that, it seems to be a river of fire that's coming out from the throne. Is that right? That's right. Yep. Streams of flaming fire so that I could not look thereon in verse 19. And the great glory set thereon, and his raiment shone more brightly than the sun and was whiter than any snow. Verse 21. None of the angels could enter and could behold his face without reason of his magnificence and glory. No flesh could behold him. So um, you got a guy sitting on a throne just like a big light bright. can't see him. You can't, you can't um, technically get too close, but everything is coming from this guy. Everything is coming from him. It's like pure energy, you know. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting, Sean, is it says that the cherubim, you know, in Ezekiel, says the cherubim were holding up, right, this crystal throne. And then we have the cherubim mentioned here as well in verse 18. Um, and, and that Yahweh... You know, when he descends and stuff, he's he rides the cherubim. I just find that interesting. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting, right? And this also, it's also uh, when we get this kind of description, we gives me a reminder and makes me think of the validity of statements in the Psalms, where he says, you know, um, the earth is my is my throne, and uh, excuse me, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Who can build a house for me? <laughs> right. So Enoch says that later too, actually. Enoch says yeah. the exact same thing verbatim. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. And so, because, I mean, man can't build a house that could, that could house something described like this and all this power and glory. So, yeah. it's, uh, it's a, God is, again, the God of rhetorical questions. <laughs> yes, he is. He's perfect at them. So, yeah. uh, all right. Um, anything else you want to say about this one? Uh, no, we just get some descriptions of, of um, you know, the Most High, his raiment shown. We already read all that. It, it matches with what the canon says, right? And 10,000, some 10,000 stood before him. Those are the angels. And we know that those angels are going to be coming down on the day of the Lord. Yep. And this is, looks like a, ref, a callback to chapter 1, yep. you know, which also we see repeated in Jude, verse uh, 14, right? Yeah. Got it right this time. I had it wrong last time. <laughs> so again, and no flesh can behold him. So all the appearances that we find in the Old Testament where we have these angels of the Lord, that's not literally Yahweh because no flesh can behold this, this mighty God of ours, at least not in these bodies. Right. It's got to be angels coming to give his messages so yeah. that we can actually interact with them. And then even Enoch, in his form that he's been showing these things, it's knocking him to the ground, and he's prostrate on the floor, and he's got to be picked up by one of the holy ones. And this, of course, is even in a vision. So it's exactly. a fleshly body. Yeah. I don't really know how that works, to be honest with you. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know how these, these concepts, when they talk about being in a vision, being in the spirit, I don't want to call it astral projection because that's like a bad term, but I don't know how else to explain it. Like I don't know exactly how this works when these prophets have these visions and they seem to go places, but are they just laying there with their body wherever they were, you know, and they didn't actually go anywhere? Yeah. Well, uh, if we think about it, he's at, he's at Mount Hermon right now experiencing this out of his body, right? If, if that's what, that's what I'm asking. Is yeah. that how it works? That's I don't how know. I understand it, yeah. 
They got people just hanging out, making sure nobody messes with his body. I don't know if it's working like that or if he's literally taken in the body as well. I, and But then you've got Paul's statement saying whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. So he's alluding to this idea that you can have a vision out of the body, you know, and you're just, right, so there's, um, that was you know, we just went through chapters 12, 13, and 14, Ken. And uh, there's a lot of, a lot of interesting stuff in there. Um, we have Enoch going both to Azazel and to the rest of the watchers to tell them what's going to happen to them, pronounce their judgment. The watchers didn't take it very well. Many of them cried. And, uh, and then he also is taken into multiple houses in heaven um, houses built with walls, ceilings, and and floors of fire. He gets to see the throne of God and 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 uh, the Holy Great One sitting on there in unapproachable light. It's amazing. And then I think uh, that'll be all that we'll discuss for this particular episode. Next episode, we're going to see in chapter 15 God's response to Enoch and what he says to him. And then we also get to see in a few later chapters up to 18, how the uh, stars apparently transgress their orders of movement in the firmament. And so uh, apparently, Ken, if, unless I'm reading this wrong, what we're going to look at next episode is these stars are not, not all of them, but some of the stars are not in the same place that they were during the days of Enoch. Does that sound right? I believe that that's a high possibility for sure. And some of them that did transgress uh, were dealt with. Or are going to be dealt with, at least. Yeah, yeah that's, I mean, that's wild because yeah. uh, there's a ton of, I mean, how, think about how many millennia that we people have looked at the stars. And so, uh, and then, of course, we get the command in Deuteronomy 429 not to look to them and worship them, right? And I think that this is fascinating that we're seeing that even they, apparently, whatever they are, can uh, somehow transgress their instructions what they're supposed to be doing and so we're going to look at that next time guys in the next episode but we uh we greatly appreciate you joining us here this episode and um and uh, as always if you got questions or comments leave them below and we'll try to get to them as soon as possible uh, if you like the information that we shared and you like the show in general like share and subscribe it on social media uh, click subscribe to the channel if you haven't already and tap the bell for notified when we release new episodes so that way you can stay up uh, we release them every saturday night and so uh, we just I have a great time doing this. We get so much out of this. We get to compare this this amazing extra biblical book called Enoch to what we have in the canon and see how much of it lines up. And uh, Ken, thanks for joining me again this week. Any last words? Yeah, thanks, yeah. Sean. Um, um, I hope this encourages you guys. And I hope it gets you to dig deep into these extra biblical books and then you know just test the things that we're talking about and see what kind of conclusions you guys can come to. And uh, yeah, I, I, I get edified when we have these conversations, Sean, and it just excites me for for our most high God and his son and just that we get to be in a relationship with this almighty one who dwells in unapproachable light surrounded by fire and that he and that he loves us and he wants us to understand, you know, the things that Enoch revealed and the scriptures, right? So it's just it's I hope this encourages you guys and uh, thank you so much for joining us and please join us next week. Okay, again, thanks everyone for joining us. Um, I'm Sean Griffin, co-host Ken Heidebrecht. Thanks for joining us for episode four of Honor of Kings as we explore the Book of Enoch. Make sure to catch us next week for episode five. See you then. Bye, everybody.